Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to World at War Comics. My next amazing guest is Mr. Steve Ekstrom. Steve, thank you for joining. He is the senior editor at Sumerian. You write, you letter, you edit, you kind of do a little bit of everything. you got a journalist background. I feel like you've touched so many different areas of comics, Steve, um, over the last few years, man. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's been kind of a labor of love. I've loved comics since I was a small child. Yeah, so, yeah. Definitely come through with your uh, resume, my friend. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. Well, let, let's go back a little bit, Steve. I think a lot of people know who you are, but for those that don't, man, where did this passion for comics and actually uh, like writing and telling stories come from? I was, um, well, I was, I joked with you before the beginning here. Um, I'm painfully extroverted, like 10 out of 10. <laughs> and um, I was introduced to comics on spinner racks in like country grocery stores, drug stores, you know, Swanee Swifty was the big one in South Georgia. Um, and so I've had my hands in comics since I was very small. And I learned how to read from word association from comics. And uh, at the, like three, four. And uh, I started collecting, accumulating them. Like when I got my first allowance, I think my first comic book I bought was like G.I. Joe number 37, I think. Nice. And Transformers number six. And it's funny I'm 47. It's been 40 years of me buying comics as a consumer and I'm buying GI Joe and Transformers again. And it's, it's really come full circle for me. Um, storytelling and stuff. I was just always kind of a kid that relayed information to people. I was a storyteller naturally. Um, I tried telling stories in school projects. And then I, when I got to college, I actually was a psych student. And then I was a philosophy student and then I was a secondary ed English student. And I ran into my senior high school English teacher and she was just like, what are you doing? Go get an English degree. So I fell into the English department after I changed my major four times. I should be like a doctor now. And um, I met my one of my um, mentors who was a poetry professor at school. And I was actually a trained poet, like a like a classic poet. And I, I won a major poet award for the country uh, as a, as a student from, um, uh, from the national, God, I can't even remember the, it's, it's a big award for like students. That's amazing. Anyway, um, national poetry award, whatever. And I won it at the age of 24 and I was graduating and I wanted to make comics, but I didn't know how. And this was before the advent of social media. Um, I'm, you know, a caveman and um I had already missed the opportunity to do things like the only ways you could make comics early on was internships or d getting out on the road, getting at shows, making indie books, having a rough time with it and just matriculating up or failing out. Or again, that, that internship window gives you access in a way that no one else has. And it kind of puts you in line to have a career at the big two. It really does. Okay. Um, so I kind of floundered for a while. I bartended in a pool hall and uh, worked in a toxicology lab, did all kinds of weird jobs. And then MySpace started showing up. And when I graduated from college, my dad was looking at me in his hotel room. He came to visit me. He's from San Diego. And he goes, what do you want to do with this writing degree? I was like, well, I kind of like to figure out how to make comic books. He goes, well, I live in San Diego, you know. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means. I'm, he's like, Comic-Con? And I was like, I don't really, what is that going to do? He's like, networking? 
And I, I, I was just kind of like naive. So the next summer I flew out, he walked around with me. I was, God, I was maybe 25. Uh, so I was kind of a late bloomer because I went to school for a long time. And um, like he taught me how to network. I met, you know, people like Jeff Johns and, you know, other creators that were just really easy to approach. Uh, I think my first conversation with a pro was Chris Claremont and Ali Garza was sitting right next to him. And it, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. This was before the Internet could sell you tickets. So once you got in and there was no preview night, I could just stand there. And Chris Claremont talked to me for like an hour. That's incredible. With nobody around. And I was just like, I'm talking to like my comic book Jesus. Right <laughs> here. Like Frank Miller and Chris Claremont were everything to me. And um, I kind of took that and that those lessons that I was learning slowly going to Comic-Con every year. And I, I got this wild idea to write comic book reviews on MySpace. And I was a big fan of Ask a Ninja. I don't know if you remember that. But it was basically like Dear Abby. It was oh. Dear Abby on YouTube, but the guy was like dressed like a ninja. It was like it, so I wanted to do this thing where I took my shirt off, put a lucha libre mask on, and I was this chubby kid yelling about the comics I didn't like. <laughs> because plenty of people it. write good reviews of things. Well, what I what, like what ended up happening was I was like not ready to get in front of a camera doing that. So I started writing little book reviews, and somebody named. Troy Brownfeld, who was running a thing called Shotgun, a website called Shotgun Reviews, and he was also the leader for Best Shots on Newsarama at the time. And he was like, hey, man, why don't you dump this mass comic dork thing you were going to do and come be Steve Ekstrom and review books with your literary degree? And I called my buddy, Adam Sandler, or not Adam Sandler, Adam, um, <laughs> he's going to laugh at that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking. I like was up till five this morning. Oh, you're okay. um, my buddy, Adam, he worked at Toy Fair magazine. He was the managing editor of Toy Fair. He was my assistant editor on the literary magazine at the college. Oh, and, cool. he, and I was like, Hey dude, what should I do with this? And he goes, there are direct competition. You should take whatever thing they offer you. And I was like, Oh, okay. I didn't know that Newsarama was like the CNN of comic book news kind of thing. So I started reviewing books for them. And then about two months later, Megacon, like 2007, was rolling around. And I volunteered to do some free work for the website. <clears throat> and I ended up, my first interview in person with somebody was Mike Carey when he was joining Adjectiveless X-Men at the time. And we had a really good conversation, really good interview. I turned in five pieces pro bono. And the work I did was so good that my boss was like, hey, I'd like you to I'd like you to keep reviewing books on the side, but I'd like to hire you to do five articles a month. And he gave me a little page rate. It was nice. It was just a little bump in pay. I was waiting tables at the time. I had like a two year old and I was trying to figure out how to solidify my grown up life. That's and awesome. um, I took it upon myself to buy a bunch of indie comics in Artist Alley. And I reviewed them in like one massive like excerpt type interview and uh, several of them contacted me back no one ever gives us exposure of this nature you were very kind the you were constructive in your criticisms this is great would you like to be in our next anthology oh cool and 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 i was like i don't even know how to get an artist so i started getting on things like digital webbing and i found a guy named doug draper who 
like also was, you know, kind of floating around, not knowing how to get started. And I said, Hey man, I worry this website, people are starting to give me attention. Let's combine efforts. I taught, started teaching myself how to letter comics in illustrator, um, based on like the teachings of like Richard Starking and Nate Picos. And I'm a big fan of both of those guys work. And I buy Blambot fonts for everything I work on. And, um, I made my first little eight page horror comic for this anthology and it had like, you know, the uh, characters had to have names. They had to have, there was a setting, there was, you know, all this stuff. And I basically told a little creepy, abrupt horror story. And I got it published about a year later in their, their anthology. And I then got it published again in another anthology because like what most people don't understand is that these things are printed in such a small manner that you can get them printed in like five or six different things. You own it because it's free work most of the time. So I've had my, I've had my first comic, which was called breakfast published in four different anthologies. Um, several years later, um, as an alum of my university, I gave a, um, uh, they hired me to do an, uh, an honorarium where I came and spoke to, and they republished that story in the literary magazine as an alumnus That's feature. Awesome. It was neat. Uh, it's it's kind of cool to be validated, and um, absolutely. I I ended up I wound up publishing it with Top Shelf on their digital anthology, um, Top Shelf 2.0, mm -hmm. and then they asked me. They're like, "Hey, can you make another scary story for like October of next year?" So Doug and I got back together, and we got Breakfast colored by a guy named Jesse Turnbull, um, and then he colored. We had another story that was called haunted and it was actually an autobiographical semi-autobiographical story about me and a girlfriend that were breaking up because I told her I saw a ghost <laughs> and they're both on top shelf 2.0. If people want to go, if you want to see my early work, I'd love to, it, man. That's awesome. It, it, they're fun comics. They're just yeah. short. This one's another pages. short was the haunted another short, like 10 page or it was 12 pages. 12 pages. That's and, uh, yeah. I just wanted to expand a little bit because I was trying to really, one of the things that I think most people don't learn when they're trying to matriculate into comics is pacing. Pacing is like one of the worst things that most people struggle with. And I saw that as, Hey, this is the thing I need to learn first. You know, I, I already know how to tell a story as a writer. I went to school for that. I was taught these, I was given so many tools for my toolbox and then I, I knew that this was a critical part of the structure of this medium and that pacing is everything and, and like scenic shifts and dialogue shifts and the fact that we read left to right and you have to know how to have people hang on a page turn and then you flip it and it's it, that way you're just going faster. Um, I learned about these things just kind of slowly because I wanted to tell good stories to people. I want our money the, these things keep getting more and more expensive because of inflation, but the money matters. And and if you're telling something to me, a, an average comic book in 2000, I did my, my senior thesis on this. Uh, part of my thesis explained that reading a comic takes about seven and a half to eight minutes, a 22 page book. And I just want to make sure that if I'm doing something that's got $5 that you have to give me, I want you to get your, your bang for your buck. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I, I also made mistakes in that time period. I, I, um, I worked on Zuda. Do you remember Zuda? Zuda? Yeah. 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 I did a web comic um, uh -huh. in July of 2008 or no 2009, excuse me, called the Aries imperative uh, with a guy named Miguel, Mikhail Bergfist. 
And it was basically Johnny Quest from the the, the Manchurian candidate from outer space. <laughs> and it was like a Johnny Quest kind of character who had like Martian DNA imposed in his body. So he was like a walking supercomputer that was like bulletproof and he could do a lot of different stuff. But like you could tell from his brain that he was a good dude, but his brain was like, nah, we're about to infiltrate the planet. So my first, you have to you have to submit eight pages. The first eight pages had so much front loaded into it that the dialogue was just drowning the book. And it, 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 it kind of got criticized for that. And I had to learn a lesson that I was being too wordy. Um, but, but it was like, I, I was kind of like, really guys, you give me a hard time. The whole next eight pages are like gunshot sound effects and albino crocodiles and that's it there's no words and it was just i i was basically taking an old comic that he had already made yeah. and chopping it up in photoshop and making like a mad lib and i was relet i was basically telling a new story like riff tracking it and it was a lot of fun but it just didn't work out we took third um but it was fun telling that story um after that uh, again i i moved around mm-hmm and I floundered a little bit and I sub- submitted proposals for stories, but this was at a time when there was a mass exodus from the big two and th- that moved back to image. So my amateurish stuff was slush pile mm. and um, that I understood that the nature of the business. So I started my own web comic in 2014 called cannibal Island, mm. uh, which is actually based on some stuff that actually happened in the Soviet union in 1923 uh-huh. Um, we had a, our first representative to, to the, to the USSR, uh, his name was William Bullitt. And, um, he went to the, he arrived in February of 1923 by the end of 1923, he left and he was like integral to helping the Bolsheviks integrate into the, the USSR. Mm-hmm. He left saying that the communism was bad and he went to his death denouncing communism after that like there were people who were okay with communism in 1923 yeah so you do research and you find out that stalin had cleansed this is going to start to sound really creepy and familiar cleansed the cities of of russia of catholics orphans um gay folks uh Romani people, uh, you would we would use the term gypsy, which I I don't think is a safe term anymore. Yeah. Um, just a lot of different what we you, we would call, but what were called undesirables back then. Yeah. So they were shipped to these labor camps. Does it sound familiar? Yeah. But they weren't they weren't like Nazi death camps. They were work camps mm-hmm. where they would drop you off in the middle of the woods, and they would give you lumber, you know, food you know, whatever supplies you needed to build your own city. And they would go, okay, we're going to have some, a guard outpost right here. If you want to live, you will build a city, you will build a town and, or you won't survive and we'll shoot you and we'll take our supplies and go somewhere else. So this happened all over the Soviet union. And as we all know, capitalism and communism are great on paper, but human greed is what really ruins both of them. So this was in effect in the, the best people had the best stuff in, in communist Russia. And so as the supplies dwindled to nothing, as the higher ups took stuff, less and less was being dropped off. So um, there was 
6,000 people that were carted to an island called Nazino that's out in the outskirts of civilization in Russia. And they're dropped on this, this island that's about the size of four football fields. And within two weeks of them being left there, it devolved into cannibalism. Oh, wow. And, it's, and it went unreported. This was hidden from the, from the world because Stalin was so sensitive to the idea that, that the outside world could figure out that, that communism, communism didn't work. So they had a habit of lying. They did the same thing with um, the Red Ripper of Rostock, which was a serial killer that ran rampant in the 60s and 70s in Russia. Killed over 50 children. Wow. Nobody knew about it for years. So when communism ended in the 90s, this French researcher found some documents that were the transcriptions of like telegrams and stuff that went from Nazino to Stalingrad oh, wow. of them saying, hey, we need help. Hey, we can't we can't take these people. Hey, they're eating each other. And so I made this comic book about Easy. I, that was fictional about this this guy this this American bringing his security detail with him, and one of the guys on the security detail was a World War One veteran mm. who was shell shocked and he had like this huge scar on his neck. Um, he's actually based on a buddy of mine who died from esophageal cancer, so this was all symbolic for me. Yeah. And um, they infiltrate the Nazino camp, and so it's all a fictional historical fiction yeah. about this translator and this guard accidentally fumbling into this horrible situation and they well somebody lives yes yeah, somebody lives <laughs> somebody sounds, lives it sounds so dope though steve holy cow man i'm i'm actually in the pro it was not really well made it was pretty rough the guy that i worked with is a great guy but he, he, back then you're you're juggling your job you're juggling a girlfriend yeah. this is not paying any money it's a web comic you're trying sure. to monetize it um i got about 22 pages out of it and then i just couldn't make it anymore yeah. and i had it all mapped out so i'm actually in the process of of getting that one like professionally remade oh man so that story can, sounds incredible man i think that's a really good story dude thanks yeah no I'm, i feel like i'm being long-winded but that was like oh no that sounds like that is gonna be a lot of fun yeah i i hope to get that one remade i've got a bunch of stuff slated that's getting made now um now that i can kind of afford it um but then, like, again, I I got called by a, a friend of mine who worked at MTV during that time period, um, Tom Ackle. And he was an executive producer at MTV who worked on MTV Geek. Yeah. And um, I worked there briefly. Um, I was kind of, it was a weird kind of gatekeepy situation with the person that was over me um, and who didn't have a really good reputation in the industry. But the Viacom pulled their funding out because there just wasn't any money in, in making news. So for geeky stuff, because there was already so many avenues. So we launched our own website called Freak Sugar. And I was the senior editor for comics, to, you know, contributing editor um, for, you know, we and we did that for a couple of years, but we just couldn't we couldn't get picked up. We couldn't get monetized. And um, which is the nature of the beast. And I just kind of kept plugging away and I got, again, came full circle with Troy about 2016. And I said, we got on the phone one night and I was like, dude, we've got to just put the band together um, and do this. And let's do an anthology book where we get a bunch of guys that are on the cusp 
get short stories made. We all make them on our own dime or for free or whatever we can do. And we put them together and then we run a Kickstarter and we failed the first time yeah. because we shot for the moon. We shot for a $20,000 Kickstarter for a hardcover anthology book without enough sample to show anybody. Mm. You, the best advice I can give anyone that ever does a Kickstarter, have about 85 to 90% of your book done yeah. so that you can show people that are going to spend their hard-earned money. It's, you're just basically pre-sales of pre-sales. That's all it is. Yeah. And uh, we failed the first time. And then I came back four months later, smarter, and I launched it as floppies. And I basically budgeted myself so tightly that I wasn't going to make a dime for any of my work, which was fine. And um, I ran enough of a Kickstarter campaign that if I hit a certain threshold, I could publish number two and give it to the readers for free as an incident. Yeah. So I hit those goals. I put out this really cool book that had a bunch of talented people on it that are still in comics and um, that are starting to get bigger. And uh, guys like Robert Carey gave us sample. You know, a lot of people donated work, basically. And um, I had a lot of cool people like donate for like my Ida variant. That was like a connector. So it was like a subway car because it was called Terminal. Uh -huh. And, and this, it was like a subway car. And I had Larry Watts. And I had Jamal Eigel and um, who else was on those? Uh, Bob, uh, Rob G from, um, he did some stuff with AIT Planet Laird um, back in the day. He did some detective comics. I, he and I went to high school together. So we we have, like, I've got, I know some comic book folks. And uh, that went well, but it wasn't, it's just like, you're so excited to finish something, but then you're like, okay, on to the next thing. So I decided by then that I'd been lettering comics, lettering my own stuff, helping people here and there, that I started charging for my lettering services, like, you know, like $12, $15 a page. And then I figured out, oh, hey, I can use my English degree because some of these people are turning in these projects to me that the, the editing was so poor, the writing was not good enough, yeah. that I was polishing their dialogue, that I was like, hey, can I make these changes? Can I do this? And then I started charging a rate for that too, and it started to be a livable income and then COVID hit. Uh -huh. And I was trying to get a day job and do this, moved to Denver because I was dating somebody there. It was, it was a lot. And I just kind of, and then we, I had some family stuff and I had to go to Kansas. And so I basically sat in this basement in Kansas for a year, just working wow. and getting stuff done. And I was introduced to Nathan Yoakum when the, uh, Sumerian was formerly behemoth. Correct. Yeah. So, I met Nathan through Mark Bertolini, who's another writer of comics from Canada. And they introduced me. And Nathan and I had one of those like stepbrothers moments where we're like, did you just become best friends? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we talked on the phone like a couple of, you know, schoolgirls for like months. And, you know, we started pitching things. He was like, let's come up with some licenses that you might want to work on. Right. Yeah. And we pitched, um, we pitched things like we looked, tried to look at Fright Night because that was a comic series back in the like early 90s, late 80s. We looked at um, Peaky Blinders, but they didn't want anything. I even put like a pitch deck together with Rob G, um, which it was just Blinders gorgeous. would be amazing. As uh, all I wanted to do was <sighs> tell the stories that they weren't telling, like when they came home from the Psalm, what happened to Tom Hardy's character when he got shot in the face. Um, I had a, I had an old man um, Shelby story to finish it out where it flashes forward like 
25, 30 years later, and Tommy Shelby just lives out in the countryside by himself, and his grandson has his dad's name, which they didn't like, and he's like a loser that gets into all this gambling debt, and Tommy has to like go into town and settle his debts. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I had so many, so many fun things, and they bad. just weren't interested. They just weren't interested in me. Uh, I'm I'm gonna take that old man Tommy thing and turn it into an actual comic with another title. But um we pitched uh this movie called The Rental. And um it's basically a, a, a it's it's a really cool indie horror movie that uh Dave Franco directed and produced. And it's about these two couples who go to an Airbnb. And so the first two acts of this movie, which I highly recommend this movie, um the first two acts of this movie are uh it's like a drama where it's like these two brothers are dating these two women, but the one brother is like sleeping with the other brother's girlfriend because they're business owners together. And then the there's like a weird Airbnb guy that shows up and he's kind of a bigot and he's kind of a scumbag. And they're just like, the fuck is this guy's problem? And then he leaves and then they're, they have like a dog with them that goes missing. And as they're looking for the dog, there's this like fog rolling in. And then this guy just kind of comes out of the fog and he's got this rubber mask that looks like the old dude from the Six Flags commercials. Da, 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 da. And he's creepy as fuck, just absolutely creepy. And um, the third act of the movie is just killing, killing, killing. And it's fast paced and it's frightening and it's very effective. And then you find out that this dude just kind of lurks Airbnbs and he's like an Airbnb serial killer. So I proposed a sequel to it that starred my my best friends that are all in a fantasy football league together. That we do destination fantasy drafts every year. So uh, we went to this gorgeous place in Helen, Georgia. I was like, perfect setting. I and I got composite. I had an artist do composites of several of my friends, and I just had plans to murder all my best friends in a comic <laughs> book, and and be on theme with this awesome movie. That's and so they cool, just yeah. never even they never even responded. It was so I was really upset about it. But <laughs> but yeah, so I kept pitching things. Yeah. And then um I was also working on a book with uh Vanya Miskovic um that's called Soko that came out last April. Uh, and it's I was just approached a letter that's eight-page sample, and Vanya was like, I would like to tell a police story. I like to watch police dramas in Serbia. And I was like, okay, where are you going to publish this? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, well, there, I, I said, I don't know if you've talked to a lot of Americans, but there is no, like, unfortunately, there's no pro cop anthology. You know, it's all just police stories where the people are on the up and up. I was like, maybe we could develop this into a project that I said, he was like, well, you know, I want to, I want to make a lot of small projects because I can spend the money to make little things, but I've never thought to make something with scope. And, you know, I hadn't gotten this far with something because it was it's hard to put things together when you don't have a lot of money and you're you're living check to check in this economy. And it's like kind of dwindling. And um, we just kind of talked it out and we developed it. And I said, hey, man, have you ever seen The Departed? Have you ever seen The Wire? I said, what if we made like a Serbian version of that? But the his impetus was about fuel smuggling which is a thing in Eastern Europe, in Africa, people manufacture their own gas. And it's like really bad for the environment and very dangerous. And um, I watched a documentary on it in Africa. They like come in and they just 
break open all the barrels and let it seep into the earth. It's just gas. It's crazy. That's crazy. Right? So I said, dude, I don't think people are going to understand what fuel smuggling is. Like a Western audience. So what's what's a big deal in Serbia? It was like human trafficking. And I was like, ding, ding, winner. This is important. (laughs) Like this is a big thing in our country. Every year, you know, the Super Bowl is the number one day for human trafficking in this country. And so he was like, yeah, you know, this is something I read about. I'm a lawyer in, in Serbia. I was like, okay, well, let's talk about this. So we developed SoCo. And it's essentially uh, an older cop, like a veteran cop, and his younger partner who is corrupt. And his he's married to this girl who her, her uncle is a human trafficker. He's a gangster. And a big part of his operation is Serbia is a filter state. So what happens, I didn't understand this about human trafficking. I learned a lot about this. Um, People from the Middle East come in through Serbia to go to Eastern, Western Europe to get amnesty because the countries are terrible. And so, but the more nefarious people that have humans trapped, you have women and children trafficked in to the Middle East for their nefarious purposes And um, so there's like a trade, a human trade. And I didn't get, I didn't, I just thought it was like we kidnapped. It was like taken. You you kidnap young girls, you break them in and they go on a yacht. Um, But it's not that simple. So we, we wanted to kind of show the natural look at human trafficking as like a sub element of this crime drama with a corrupt cop and a noble cop. And, um, yeah, it's it. We published the first three comics. Unfortunately, the fourth one was indefinitely uh, uh, delayed, and I, it probably is going to have to be picked up at another brand to be republished. I'd like to finish it. Um, we just we we had some deadlines that were couldn't be met on the fourth book, and life kind of took over. Um, I started working on a bunch of projects here, and I I couldn't like it was Vanya's project that he was funding. And I could not steward it enough from like the cheap seats, you know, but um, the first three issues are fantastic. They're out. Um, we're going to get, I know we'll get number four published eventually. Um, that was through Sumerian, right? Yep. It was originally going to be signed at Behemoth, but then Behemoth was sold to Sumerian records. Uh, Ash Abelson, uh, son of John Abelson, um, Karate Kid, Rocky. Um, Ash is a really good guy. He produced a cool movie called American Satan in 2017, um, wrote, directed, produced. Um, that's about a rock band that, you know, has a Faustian deal. And, um, I kind of enjoyed it. And, um, he has a television show that's oddly adjacent to his movie with the same, most of the same cast. And it's more of a dramedy and it's on Amazon. It's called, uh, Paradise City. And it's really cool because it like the horror movie aspect of this movie was that, you know, they made a deal with the devil and then all this bad stuff happens. And but evil prevails and kind of saves the the lead character. His name is Johnny Faust and it's played by Andy Beersack from the Blackmail Brides. And Malcolm McDowell is the devil. And really, I really just love the aesthetic and the dark nature of the movie. And so you take it into this television show that's more has this more dramatic you know, kind of comedy feels naturalism. And it's about them recovering from all the bad stuff that they went through and the troubles that they have now from their life in the movie. 
that where they rose to the top because they made a deal with the devil. And there's still these like, angels and devils lurking in the background. And it's like the, the consequences. And I, I really just enjoyed it. So one of the first things I pitched was when they made the switch, as I said, I would really like to tell like a companion book that melds the movie to the show better. And that kind of tells the story in between the lines of what happened to these characters developmentally. And so that hasn't been produced yet, but it's done. Um, we're kind of, I, I guess they're just kind of waiting for something in the schedule to fit. And I think they're in the process of filming season two. Nice. So it would be kind of a beautiful segue to have these two things. Um, and we, I was pitching a lot of stuff, um, but we, I pitched a, a thing that's um, connected to a very popular 90s rock band. I can't really speak on it because I don't want to hype it up and it not ever happen. But I got to write a cool, weird science fiction story uh, connected to a band I'll tell you about after we've stopped. <laughs> and we're just waiting for the singer to approve it. And it's a really weird story that's kind of um, the it's 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 weird science fiction. That's almost have like a I'm not I'm I'm a registered Democrat, but it has a very QAnon adjacent kind of theme going on in it. It's weird. And um, so, yeah, there's that. And then about 18 months ago, Nathan was like, hey, man, what do you think about pitching for? X, Y, and Z. And and Z was the fog. And I went, okay, wait a minute. I don't know if you know this, but John Carpenter's like my favorite thing on the planet. Um, I literally am wearing a Michael Myers t-shirt this morning. And I, you know, I'm a kind of a morbid dude with all this stuff. And I was like, I love that movie because it was like the second horror movie I saw as a child. Really? Like the Halloween, Halloween being the first. I was one of those kids in 1980 that saw the NBC Halloween movie that they released a, like simultaneously that when Halloween two came out in 80, 81 and I was trick or treating and standing there and just like pissed my pants scared of Michael Myers. And I just it imprinted core memory established. <laughs> so anyway, I, I immediately had, what was funny is I had watched the fog like three days prior to him saying that to me. I was like, really? And, and I was like, okay. So I watched it. And then he was like, by the way, you cannot mention the reboot in this in your book project. They don't want anything to do with the 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 remake of this movie that came out and is on Amazon. I was like, okay, fine. And I just immediately had a good idea because I I wanted to study like what happens after somebody has this like huge paranormal event where a, a whole town is just wrecked. Yeah. What do you say to the, what does the real world say to that? They don't say anything because they just move on. Yeah. <laughs> so my idea was that Antonio Bay becomes like a paranormal and, you know, a paranormal bed and breakfast, you know, vacation spot Yeah. that becomes a touristy attraction, but it's still a fishing community. So like Andrew Wayne, Andy Wayne, the little boy from the first book, he's, he's got his own fishing business. And he's married to another girl that's from the town or his parents or whose parents are from the town, a legacy family that's from the town. And they have a kid and Stevie Wayne, Adrian Barbeau's character is still doing DJ stuff in the lighthouse. And now she's dating. Um, most people don't remember this, but um, John Carpenter had a character part in the fog. He played like the janitor for the church that did like handyman work. And, and I was just, his name was Bennett. And I was just like, oh man, John Carpenter's in his own movie. That's so cool. Oh, I have to check that out, man. Yeah, so I wrote a little 
spot for Bennett to exist yeah. in my books to pay homage to him because I like this guy is is a master storyteller. And so she's dating Bennett and he's like retired now and he owns a couple bungalows that he rents out as Airbnbs. And, you know, like Andy Wayne's wife owns an antique shop, but like clearly Andy puts up a, a mask. And so I want to talk about like Andy lives with this trauma of seeing these, you know, leper pirate ghosts that are trying to kill him. And, um, I want to, I, there was a, a character that's in the beginning of the movie that has just like a, a 30 second appeal. And I was like, man, that's a, that's actually a pretty creepy moment. What if that guy had more to do with the darker elements of the history of Antonio Bay? So I'm bringing back another character that you don't really see coming. And he's kind of this malevolent presence based on some local fiction from where I'm from in South Georgia. Um, a buddy of mine who's a, who's a retired history professor, who's friends with my mother in high school. Um, I used to cart him around to when he couldn't drive and for doctor's appointments and things like that. And he would tell me stories about the region. And he told me the story about this guy that I guess actually exists that was found as a child in the woods, unclothed, did not speak a word, nothing. He was like three years old. They just kind of found him wandering around in the woods. A family found him. And he's called like the man from nowhere. That's and I was like, are you sure this is real? And he was like, "I." I it was eight, the 1880s, which also fits in the time frame of the, the fog. He goes, it was in like the 1880s. So there's no like record of it. But I know that they exhumed his body many years later. And they tried to DNA test him and he didn't connect anybody. That's crazy. <laughs> That's weird, right? So I'm like, let me scour the internet. There's nothing. And I'm like, are you pulling my leg, Dr. Crowley? And he's like, no, this is a thing I've heard about from multiple people in this area of Georgia. So I was like, man, what a great premise. So I just stole that and I lifted it and made it the the kind of the um, fulcrum for what produces my story is that there's in, at the end of every of one of these fog comics there's going to be two pages of supplemental material the first two pages the back two pages of number one which you didn't get to see these they're they're journal entries from a, a woman that was involved with the man who found the boy in the woods and she like and her name is Samantha Loomis which is a huge plug to Sam Loomis which is Dr. Loomis in Halloween, which is a meta reference to Sam Loomis in Psycho, because it was all meta stuff for John Carpenter back then. And I wanted to just respectfully pay homage to all of it. So like the next episode, there there are some characters, another legacy character that I introduce that um, is the love child of um, Jamie Lee Curtis and I can't Tom... um, the other actor, the dude who kind of like pulls Andy out of the house when the ghosts show up, they have a, a daughter together and they moved away from Antonio Bay and they died. And she has like a paranormal podcast and her and her two friends um, come into town to visit town. And she's never been to where she was conceived, born, you know, and um, she's kind of a magnet for this guy. So there's there's just kind of these elements in the second issue. I'm hoping like to get this nailed down where it's like a transcript of one of her podcasts that alludes to what's happening. And then the third issue will have like um, a police report from the 1980, like a, a 
a couple days after the event in the fog, they start going into people's houses to see what happened. And they find that Antonio Bay has been harboring like this entity that's been killing people and like shelving them in the basement kind of thing. So you'll have like a um, police report with like gruesome details. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's kind of this like building thing. And um, yeah, I'm really excited. This is a four issue series, but it ends in such a way, in such an open way that hopefully we can do four more. Yeah, and I'm just really hoping people like this as much as as I like. I wrote this story. A lot of times, people tell you to write stories for your audience, but the real truth is, you should write stories for yourself because if you love something, other people are going to love it. Yeah, and so I wrote. I wrote this. This is the first thing I've ever written for me. Yeah, and yeah, so it's it's really exciting, and um, I've got some other horror things coming down the pi the pipeline, but. The fog is really like I'm so excited that this book is coming out. Yeah, and it comes out. I think was it February 28th is when you should be yep. able to see those stores. The FOC I think just ended, but you could still go to yep. your store and you could still request it. Yeah, I I had always thought that you know when when you got you hit final order cutoff that was it, but you can go to stores and say hey you need to order this book. It just won't arrive. I think on the day of the release, it'll just it'll be, be late. late I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I never understood that. I, I love retailers. I, they are the front line for us and why we exist and why I get to make these cool things. And I don't think that they're given their due a lot of times. And I think that it's the brick and mortar element of comics is changing. And um, I don't, I don't like the thought of, you know, 200 stores closing this year. Uh, you don't know, you know, it's, it's kind of ominous. There's a lot of um, people out with placards that say the sky's falling, but if people aren't buying these things, these guys can't keep these stores open in indie comics. There has to be quality control because they're guaranteed with Marvel and DC and image and dark horse and boom, these people have standards, but when you're made, you're a smaller imprint, you can't, they won't take risks on your books if they aren't good. Yeah. And so there's kind of this, you know, this symbiotic thing that we have to kind of nurture where we care about the quality of our books that we're putting in stores, that we're given opportunities to shine for people because we put effort into them. Yeah. And um, it's it's just kind of tantamount. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really stoked. I'm actually setting up a bunch of store signings uh, regionally. Um, uh, the, the farthest one away right now is, is in Atlanta, um, at your parents or my parents' basement, I think is what it's called. And it's like a brew pub that has like all these like vintage pinball machines and video games, and then a full-size comic store in it. That sounds amazing, man. Oh, it's, it, it's gorgeous. And I, it was so weird. I, yes. And I, I went in there and I was in there a couple months ago because my, my girlfriend was at a medical conference in Atlanta. And I was just kind of riding her coattails into a nice hotel room. And my best friend and his wife lived there. And I was like, hey, dude, take me to this place because I want to see if they'll do a book signing with me in a few months. I walk in and two guys that I went to college with work there. And I hadn't seen these guys in like 20 years. That's and I just walked in and my buddy was like, Steve, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm here scoping this place out. And um, I ended up buying some comics. I found a copy of the first Hellboy, like oh, Seeds wow. of Destruction, Hellboy number one. I, it's the only book I was missing bought it 
you know, like stuff like that. I bought a bunch of the distillery books, which I think are gorgeous. The format's gorgeous. Um, I want to make a distillery book so bad. And um, they were really, really open. And they were like, yes, we want to have you. So I'll be in Atlanta. I'll be there earlier. I'm actually trying to get a signing done on Wednesday, too, on on, on the 28th. And then I wanted, uh, I'm signing on Friday night. It's going to be a nighttime signing because it's a bar. Yeah. And so many of them, I have so many people I know in Atlanta, I'm hoping they'll come. And um, they've never done, they were like, we want to do this. And we've got something, you've got stuff to sell and books you've worked on. So this is kind of cool. Let's see if what happens. And um, then I'll be, I'll be there Friday night on uh, the second. And then on the third, no, it's the first, Friday the first, Saturday the second. Sorry, I'm leap year. Um, I'll be in Tifton, Georgia, at a place that I've been doing signings now for about three years, Rago's Comics. Um, smaller town, smaller volume store, but their audience is rabid yeah. and loyal. And I, I have a really good time. The people in that town are wonderful, and they come in and support me every time I'm there, and they buy whatever I'm selling. It's kind of incredible. And then I'll be heading back down. I'm from Valdosta, Georgia, which is about an hour south of that. Um, I, I don't think I can make a time where it would be an advantageous place to do a signing there. I'll be doing a signing. What's after that? I'll be getting back into town. We're driving up to the Orlando area to Maitland and I'll be doing a sign. I think it's called Blackbird, Blackbird Comics and Coffee House. And it's going to be in Maitland, Florida. And I'll be signing with Brooklyn Prince, uh, the little girl from Cocaine Bear. Yeah. she'll be there doing and I'm, we're trying to work out a thing where we're both in the store at the same time she has a book from Sumerian coming out the following Wednesday after the fog comes out so we'll both be in the store doing a signing there doing promoting there and then I'll be after that I've got another signing the weekend after that locally uh, in South Florida where I am in a place called Docking Bay 94 and I'm trying to set up something at a huge store called Tate's that's nearby me and I'm just like, I'm going to have like six or eight stores. Nice. And I was telling you, and I'll, uh, and I can kind of leak this without showing anybody yet. I am getting my own variant for my web store. Nice. To sell. And I'm basically going to have virgin variants. I'll have, I'm, I'm looking at like 150 of those. And then I'll have 50 foil virgin nice. variants with a cover by Drew Ragland. I will probably put the, the cover for my book up next week on social just because I want to get the order done and I want to make sure it's coming before I make a promise that, Hey, I'm putting this really gorgeous thing out and then it doesn't come out. Right. So I want to make sure all my I's and T's are dotted and crossed and, and That's then really see. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks man. It's labor of love. I, I've loved comics my entire life and it's all I've ever wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the genre that has, I know you spoke a little bit about it, of watching Halloween and some of these movies growing up, but it seems like uh, horror has been a huge part of your life and kind of that thriller um, genre. Can you kind of talk about the passion behind that? Because it seems like that's where your wheelhouse is and where you feel most comfortable. I think that like fear is the most, like love and fear are the two things that, you know, when, when you think about hatred, it really, when you when you kind of root cause analysis, hatred and things like that, you find yourself coming back to fear. 
the fear of some unknown, the fear of something happening to you, the fear of happening, something happening to your loved one. It kind of touches our hearts in a way that produces adrenaline. It does all these things. It creates emotion. Um, I've always been sort of um, fearless in my pursuit of fear. Is that weird? Um, like I like being scared. I've done some weird shit. I've gotten in some trouble. I've almost died a couple times. I've seen some stuff. And um, when I watch horror movies, when you think of like what the 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 people who like John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, um, Wes Craven, what they developed in the late seventies and early eighties for the slasher dynamic, the slasher subgenre, they created like this kind of Norman Rockwell esque look at suburbia, suburbia, the horror in suburbia, and you know. Um, and, and not, you know, not to forget about like things like Friday the 13th or, or like even going back as far as Psycho and Alfred Hitchcock and like suspense, the element of suspense. And like, I am not um, a gore person, like not heavily. Like I can, I can see somebody, you know, being decapitated like Father Malone in the fog uh, because it doesn't, John Carpenter never really employed a ton of gore until the thing when he, and that's a remake. And that, that's, again, him paying respect to the films he loved as a child. And so the, the, the human brain is such a powerful vessel for suspension of disbelief and to carry out things off camera. So implied horror, to me, is much more valuable than, say, you know, shock porn, torture porn, modern horror, where you've got to have these gore elements because that's what's driving your vehicle and i th i think that that's like there are movies that are far scarier when you don't have to employ that and and you use it sparingly um midsummer hereditary there were some gore elements to them but they were done in such a naturalistic way that it's it's painful to watch it's it hurts you to watch it and and i think that that's that's more impactful than constantly hacking people's limbs off and blowing things up and fucking turkeys like Eli Roth's thing and all that stuff, yeah. which I think is just gaudy. It's just Baroque. Um, but yeah, horror has been a thing in my life. Like I was one of those kids that my parents wouldn't let me watch horror movies. So I snuck over to other people's houses to watch them. So I had seen like all the Friday the 13th by the time I was like 10, exactly. all the nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> And, and this is a weird story that actually I, I told this anecdote in front of my girlfriend's family. And it was like, I think I made a mistake doing this. <laughs> but when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Like I, I lived in a military base in Korea. So like when the novelization of Nightmare on Elm Street 1, 2, and 3 was produced, I bought it. You know, because I had an allowance and the people working at the bookstore had no, you know, no filter to stop a child from buying this. <laughs> so people would be like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd be like, I want to be a serial killer. And like my, my mom would just like lean over and be like, stop being an asshole and just say engineer, you know? And, and I would just be like, I, I just think these, these things are cool. You know, I love watching scary movies because I like being afraid. I like the feeling I get from being afraid. And I told this, my girlfriend and I, my current girlfriend that I live with, we're sitting down with her family and Chris just kind of looks at me and she goes, so Steve wanted to be a serial killer when he was like 10 years old. And they're like, wait, what? And I was like, so I told him this anecdote 
And I just kind of at the end went like, huh? and they were just, it was crickets. Yeah. Like they were just kind of like quietly judging me. Like yeah. this dude might be a little weird. <laughs> and I was like, I'm a lot weird. You yeah. aren't ready. You don't and, even know, man. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and but it, it's like I've been telling horror stories my whole life. Like yeah. I love the um the nature of like the oral history of like a ghost story and how like stories change over time. And when you hear like local lore stories like I had heard. Yeah. Um, there's another story that I'm going to be digging into. That's actually a real thing that happened in where I'm from, where in the late sixties, four kids were getting drunk and out driving around. They broke into a church and they saw something. They go to the parishioner. He's living in like a trailer down the road from this church in the middle of nowhere. That's like 120 years old. It's called the burnt church because <laughs> it burned down. I've been inside of this thing. There's only like, it's like a primitive Baptist church. So it's like raw wood. Yeah. And it's been around since the, eight, the 1800s. And Dr. Crowley took me out there and showed it to me and let me in. And he's like, yeah. And then the four people got in a car accident after they left the parishioner and only one of them lived and he's in a wheelchair and he lives, he lives about a, a mile down the road. And I was just like, Holy shit. That's what? And I was like, I'm just writing things down. I'm just like, yes, yes. Give me this. This is going to be good. <laughs> and um, I'm just cribbing stuff. And, but it's like that kind of stuff gets your blood pumping. Um, there used to be a bridge, a decommissioned bridge between my, where my city, Valdosta is, and a smaller town, Quitman, across the county line. And it's like a bridge that crosses the two counties. It's decommissioned, but you can walk out to it. Like they've dug trenches so cars can't go over it in the woods. And it's like they've turned on one side of the bridge, they've turned up all this earth. Well, pe kids go out there to smoke pot and drink beer and do stuff spray paint stuff and i'd been out there a number of times and i went out there one night and as we're coming back into town a buddy of mine who's a policeman was like you know there's been like two execution style murders out there in the last like four years it's like no he's like what do you not read the paper i was like no who does that and i was you know in my late 20s and i didn't know that you know this place had become kind of sorted and like you just find local things to kind of drive that desire to be scared um, I like, like, I, the, the new, like I'm wearing a Michael Myers shirt that some dude made that looks like a Thrasher magazine thing. He's on a skateboard, but it's like the new Halloween movies come out. I was so excited to, to see him. The first one was okay. The second one was kind of not okay. And then the third one was just not great. And it, you kind of, when you love something like this, you, you see the flaws in it, but I also just want to hear the stories and there's themes with trauma and like what happens when mob mentality takes over. And then what happens when people are, do something on accident and it trans like those kinds of accidents transform people. So you see these storytelling, you know, narratives. Um, and there's a lot of horror. There's a lot of horror for everybody. You know, I have a, I have a trans kid. And he, we live in fear of somebody harming my kid and you can't rescue your kid from everything. Um, my, my girlfriend works in the LGBTQ, um, in, you know, sphere. And there's a lot of fear for her. She gets death threats because she's written books about stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had death threats for whatever it's political polarization, getting into arguments with people on Facebook, um, having stalkers. These things are nebulous and they creep up on you in a way that is um 
just lives in the back of your mind. And it's like, you're constantly looking over your shoulder. How do you harness that? And that that's what converts into good storytelling is like taking these things and, and catabolizing it into, you know, healthy stories where we can all relate to each other in like a human capacity. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And then, like you said earlier, when, when you have that kind of like connection to the story and there's a passion with that connection as a reader, you do feel that when someone's writing something that they really enjoy. Um, I think it comes across as a reader too. And when someone is writing something that they're just not that interested in, you could tell as well, right? Just the same way right. as a writer and an artist not being on the same page, you could tell too, right? You're like, there's like two stories going on here and I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to be receiving, right? Right, right, right. You have to like, what was really cool about meeting Marco and approaching him, because I just loved his work. And I, I, you know, I reached out and I said, hey man, we got a budget. How, what's your page rate like in Italy? And it, it wasn't a matchup at first. And, and but then when he found out that it was John Carpenter, you know, approved, like, I don't know the, the veracity of how much it went into this, but we were told through the licensor, at least I was told this, yeah. that John Carpenter had a hand in approving the project. So he selected my project with the licensor. That's oh. huge for me. What That's a huge cool. level up. Yeah. But and like, what's crazy is that, you know, his wife has a comic brand that he operates out of. Yes. And I want to send them an email and just be like, Hey, can I, can I tell a scary story with you guys? Yeah. And, um, but like, you know, you're, you, you team up with somebody who loves these things as much as you. And it's like, he would send me pages like every day. Hey, what do you think of this? And then he would post stuff, but I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to post because yeah. I've got Ryan Swanson and Nathan Yoakum going, Hey buddy, you can't do that with the licensing agreement. Like tell them what it is. And Marco's just like drawing stuff and posting it. I'm like, but he can, you're like, he's not telling anybody what it is. And I'm like, I just want to shout from the rooftops that I'm writing this book. But um, like he and I hit it off really well. Um, when I showed him my scripting style, which I write full script, I don't Marvel method anything. Um, he was just like, man, this is great. You know, this is so nice that you've written this tight, organized script so we can track how much dialogue is on a page. You know, you give good descriptions that are cinematic in nature. I watch an obscene amount of television and film i read books and i think in frames because i think that that's an, another thing that a lot of newer comic bookers don't consider they they think that you're going to have this weird synergistic relationship with an artist where you're just like i'm just i'm going to describe what needs to happen and you're i'm just going to write dialogue over it and then here's the dialogue bullets and that, that's just not, that's not how good comic books get made. I don't think the people at Marvel are trained to do this differently. And if you haven't had that training or you haven't matriculated enough making these books, you're not going to do that well. And I just think that as a, as a guy that's kind of the, at the helm of the project as the writer, I think it's very important to have a tight structure that, that has a thoughtful dialogue because Again, we're paying five, six, seven, eight dollars for these books. And if there's not enough dialogue and you're just page turning and looking at an art book, it's not the same experience. And I think it really is disrespectful to the medium. And I think it's disrespectful to the readers. Uh, great point, Steve. Great point. Well, Steve, man, this is incredible. So the fog 
February 28th in your local comic book stores. I would go this week and make sure that you're asking them to order that. Maybe there's a chance it'll come in on the 28th if they haven't ordered. If not, you'll get it like the next few days. But The Fog is coming out in February Part one of four. So it'll be a four-part series to start. You left it yep. open at the end. Let's hope for that second four-part series not too far after that, Steve. That'd be awesome. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Number two solicits are already up on previews if you want to take a look. Um, there is a on previews. If you go to previews online, you there is, I think, a six-page preview of number one also. Sweet. So take a look. And it's it's just naturalism and horror. Uh, you're it's set up like I'm excited to to scare people. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, issue one, I mean, thank you for giving me that prequel of view of that. But it, the art is spectacular. The story is amazing. And you set it up really nice for that issue number two. So I, I cannot wait to get into that. I will definitely make sure that my comic book store has it. But Steve, man, it's been so fun talking to you. I hope you could come back again when uh, one of your other projects uh Absolutely. I, yeah, I'm working. I'll go ahead and kind of I'm working on a public domain project that's got a major film coming out at the end of the year. I'm not going to talk beyond that. Hey, that's good enough. I don't want to I don't want to like jinx it. I've yeah, got a really great artist who's a bit of an unknown, but he's he works in L.A. Yeah. Um, he's done storyboards and stuff. And I've, I was telling you, I've got a big name guy that's going to I've budgeted for the cover mm. and um, I'm really going to pull all the stops out for it. I just you know, once we get some publishable material, I'm going to see, I'd really like to take it to image or somebody like if, if, if I could get in the door at distillery, I would probably like shoot over the moon. I'd be so happy. Well, that's awesome, Steve. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on today and talking with us and uh, man, I hope we could do it again. And until next time, Steve, man, I will make sure I put all the links on how to get the fog and all your other prior work. That way, if you want to know more about Steve and all the great things that he's done over the years, um, I'll make sure all those links are there for you. Steve, thank you for joining me. You're always welcome, my friend. And uh, it was a pleasure having you today. Thanks, Tommy. I really appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. You too.